you know, as they say, you know, you got two arms, you know, one to, one to pull yourself up and one to pull somebody else up with you. And you have that attitude and you can have great team members, you know, just bringing people along with you and learning with you. I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. We are a family on a journey towards financial and location independence. Each week, we interview successful real estate entrepreneurs about their chosen investment strategy and rate it based on how much money it took to get started, how long it took to educate themselves, how passive it is, and whether or not they could do it from anywhere in the world. Welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. If you like our show, the easiest way for you to give back is to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Head on over to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash review for links and instructions on how to do that. We would be so grateful. All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom. Greetings, friends and families. I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. You're listening to The Road to Family Freedom. With us today is Jeff Greenberg. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing fantastic today. It's great to have you. A little bit about Jeff. Jeff is currently the CEO and managing member of Synergetic Investment Group. Jeff has been an investor in a $20 million multi-property portfolio consisting over, of over 800 units. SIG currently controls over 300 student housing beds and properties in Georgia, Arizona, and Ohio. SIG's focus is on value-add student housing, market rate multifamily, and senior living multifamily properties. With all that said, Jeff, you want to give our friends and families a little bit more about your background and let us know how you got into real estate. Well, you've got, you've got the beginnings there, so that, that's great. I've been doing this for, let's see, about 11 years now. So we bought our first, pro- well, I first got into real estate probably in about 2007, well, the end of 2007, 2008. Bought our first multifamily in 2010 and uh, just been going uh, since then. We've sold off a couple properties uh, recently within the last year. And um, so we're, we're on the acquisition side of it now looking for some more properties. But we definitely need value add uh, in, in this market. We want something with a value add. We don't want just straight stabilized properties. Gotcha. And for our listeners who don't really understand what value add might be, could you give a quick explanation for that? Sure. We need something besides just going and saying, okay, we're going to raise rents. Either we're going to buy something that's got a low occupancy that we can fix something and increase the occupancy, or if we can put, you know, five to $10,000 in a unit in order to get another hundred, $200 a month in the rents, those are value adds. Other value adds might be uh, charging for uh, covered parking, garages or storage areas, other, well, building back utilities. So other, other things of that nature where you can increase the revenue or doing more efficiencies where we're reducing the expenses, uh, finding where the inefficiencies are and reducing expenses with, um, we're looking at more more efficient lighting, water saving uh, either toilets or fixtures uh, to cut down in the expenses. All of those things add value to a property, a commercial gotcha. property. And because of the way commercial property is valued, if you increase the net operating income, the, the net revenue, you increase the property value substantially, correct? Absolutely. And that's the one thing I, I love about commercial properties. You're, you're not tied to the comps in the neighborhood. 
uh, single family homes, you can fix it up all you want and you're not gonna get much more value than what the neighborhood brings in. And commercial real estate, that part doesn't matter. If you can increase the NOI, you're going to increase the value of the property. And that's what's so much fun about the uh, commercial properties. Gotcha. Uh, your first multifamily property, you said you had that during the Great Recession. Could you uh, talk to us a little bit about how that performed during the recession? Well, that was more at the tail end of it. The property was built in 2007 and we bought it in 2010. It actually ended up with two builders that got stuck with it. They didn't plan on holding the properties, but they held them because they couldn't sell them in 2007 or at least they couldn't get what they wanted to get out of them. Even when we bought them in 2010, the one, the one seller, uh, he, he was going to have to come to the table with money. Well, first of all, he owed three years worth of taxes that he hadn't paid, but he was going to have to come to the table with money and he refused to. So my broker had to, he had to throw in part of his commission just to make it break even. So the seller made no money out of that one, but there was, there was actually two sellers. The other guy, the other seller made very little. They just basically didn't want to be property managers. They wanted to get out of it. And so we got some great, a great deal on it. They made very little on those properties. Gotcha. Nice. And uh, you want to give us a little bit of um, numbers on that, like size of property, uh, market, location, mm -hmm. class of property and things like that? Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll say up front, this was an education. We didn't make a lot of money out of it. Our investors uh, did, did fine, but it was in a town called Harlingen in Texas. And if you don't know where Harlingen is, uh, look on a map where, uh, where Texas meets the Gulf and meets Mexico. And it's about 35 miles north of that. Uh, it's a very small uh, town, slow growth, which was one of our problems that the uh, the rent growth didn't happen the way we had hoped for. This was a three-year-old property, 100% occupied. Uh, there was no value adds. The only value add was raising rents. We were also hoping to build back on water because they were already paying their own electric. So we were trying to build back on water and we were met with some great resistance. So we had trouble with that. And so we ended up just a slow growth property that we were slowly increasing rents. We had an 8% preferred return and the investors got their return. And we basically ran the, ran the property for six years without any, without any compensation. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But it was a six year lesson. Yeah. And uh, some of the investors are still with us. Yeah. Yeah. Any things that you might do differently as far as um, market selection, property selection now, you know what you know? Well, as I said before, we're looking at value adds. And I don't think I mentioned this was a 20 unit property. Okay. It was actually, it was actually five fourplexes and we treated it as a, all in the same cul-de-sac and we treated it as a 20 unit property. But the lessons learned were, you don't buy a property with some without some value add and it can't just be saying, okay, I'm going to raise rent and build back water. If it doesn't happen, then you've got to sit there and try to uh, figure out what else you're going to do. We held the property for six years instead of the five that we had planned because when we started to sell it at year four and a half, 
we couldn't get the price that we were looking for. So we kind of drew this line in the sand and said, we're not selling it if we don't get this price. And we just, it ended up taking us till the sixth year. We had to uh, extend the loan. Fortunately, the bank was real good about that. We extended the loan and until we finally got the price at the end of six years. Now, the other thing that was real interesting, and we were talking about this earlier with commercial real estate versus uh, residential, we had to sell these fourplexes as a commercial real estate, otherwise we couldn't get the value. If we went and had them priced as a fourplex, as a residential, there was no comps. There were, there were the comps that, that were in the area this was a cul-de-sac that had, um, I believe, uh, maybe about 16 to 20 fourplexes. The only thing that had sold in years were three properties that had sold in foreclosure. Oh. So we would have, our only comps was a foreclosure comps. Yeah. Yeah. And that would have killed us. We couldn't get our price. So we had to sell it all together. We, we couldn't break it up. Even though each of the properties had a separate title, separate deed, separate loan, uh, these are five different loans. We couldn't sell it separately because we couldn't, we wouldn't have been able to get our value. Mm -hmm. So that was definitely a lesson that we learned on that. We had, we had hoped that the uh, community would be growing faster than it did. Uh, they were just breaking ground for a new Bass Pro Shop. If you know where the Bass Pro Shop, yep. you know, it's like Disneyland for uh, sports enthusiasts. <laughs> and uh, they were, so we thought, wow, this is going to be a great, boost for this community and it did bring in some businesses but not nearly what we had hoped for yeah so so the small community just didn't have the growth potential that that we expected and so that's something we learned you know it was a slow growth town and there was just no way to raise the rents the way we needed to yeah location 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 yeah <laughs> yes. just a quick question what is the number of units that qualify something to be commercial versus residential? Uh, over five. I mean, five, five and above. So okay. a fourplex is still considered residential. Got but it. when you're getting a loan, five units and above is uh, considered commercial. Okay. Cool. So. Well, we are big believers in beginning with the end in mind. So what's your destination? Um, where is real estate investing taking you? Well, I guess, I mean, are you asking about more of my why or what I'm looking yeah. at as far as number of properties? Uh, more of your why. Yeah. I mean, like, obviously we all have kind of a number for what we want financially, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But, but yeah, this is more of the sort of why are you doing this? <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and, and your show um, a theme is, is a perfect one for me because my why, my why is family. Being able to do things with my family to help my kids buy houses. I'm out here in Southern California. House prices are very high. I have I have grandkids that I want to spend time with. You can see some of the pictures behind me of of my grandkids. Uh, they're extremely important to me, and I I love spending time with them. I love doing things with them. I want to do traveling with them. Uh, I want to you know be able to. Uh, leave them, leave them uh, uh, a little bit of a legacy. On the last property that we just bought, I bought, a, um, I bought one share of the property for each one of my grandkids. 
So they now have an ownership share of, of that property. And with each property, I'm going to try to get them at least one share of, of each of the properties. And they may not understand what I'm doing right now. I've explained it to the 10 and 11 year old. You know, I don't know how much they grasp it. Obviously, the, the four and the six year old don't, don't understand what's going on. But at some point, maybe they will. And if I can help my kids and my grandkids with their financial education and to understand, um, you know, money and real estate, you know, that's, that's my why. Uh, I want to spend more time with them. I want to enjoy spending time with family. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it really, time is, uh, time is the m most precious resource yeah. we have. So I think that's, it's a common, Absolutely. common theme from all of our guests. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's kind of why we're, yeah. doing this as well as we want to be able to have more time with Holden moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And you have, and you, you guys are young, you have a young family and it, it's so important to spend that time with them. You know, they're not going to be that age, you know, again, um, yeah. to enjoy that time and to be able to have a business where you could work it around your family uh, is extremely important. I mean, I didn't start doing this until late in life. And my kids were already grown up, but with my grandkids, I still want to spend time with my grandkids. I love spending time with them. And uh, so I can work my schedule around. I could go and do things with them. I could take them to school. I could take, I could go to their soccer game. I can do all kinds of other things. And I come back and maybe I'm going to be on the computer until 1030 at night, but I can schedule myself whatever time and work around my enjoyment of spending time with them and watching them grow. Yeah. That's awesome. So when you made the decision to plunge into real estate, how did you go about getting yourself educated? Well, I went, I went the guru circuit. This was in uh, 2007 when I was first learning about uh, multifamily. And there really wasn't any podcasts to listen to. I didn't know about any books. The, any of the real estate events I went to, they talked about single family and, and I did, I did try doing REOs for a while, but in 2007 was not a good time to be doing REOs because the banks didn't know what the heck to do with them. They had so many uh, foreclosed properties or properties they weren't even foreclosing because they didn't want to have another one on their books. I know someone that uh, was in foreclosure for six years and she lived there without making payments because the banks really didn't want to kick her out of the house and have another of another property sitting around. So I, I ended up going to a guru and going to seminars and participate in seminars. And then later on, we started seeing more of these podcasts coming out and uh, you know that kind of stuff. But for the most part, I didn't have that resource that we have now. Now there's so many, so many different educational resources. Uh, it's phenomenal. Did you find that time with the mentor uh, to be valuable? Yeah, I did. I did. And um, there's a lot of mistakes that I would have made otherwise. And, you know, we, everybody's going to make mistakes, but you're, at least you can learn from other people's mistakes. So at least you don't make quite as many. <laughs> so that's, that's always good. Yeah. You know, mentorship's good. Uh, you know, I do coaching now as well and I try to help people out and uh, to learn at least hopefully they're not going to make uh, the same mistakes I've made. And, you know, everybody's going to make mistakes and hopefully they aren't devastating mistakes. Hopefully they're small ones and, and you can recover from them. 
Yeah, I've often heard people say, you know, you can either, you know, lose a bunch of money in your first couple of deals, and that's your education, which is great, or you can, you know, spend pay some money, money <laughs> spend the money on on a mentor, and you still may lose your money, some money on the first deal, but you're probably not going to lose as much. Right, um, right. And you might get, and you might get to your destination a little faster. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've we've uh, the only money that we've ever lost on a deal is deals that we didn't do that we started we maybe went under contract we flew out there we did our inspections paid inspectors and then then decided it wasn't a deal for us so you know you lose those kind of that's part of doing business you know your your cost of travel your inspections you lose that but other than that you know so far we we haven't lost any money we've never lost investors money so so we're very proud of that that um, that hasn't happened gotcha. Uh, are there any books now uh, that, that you would recommend? Um, I mean, there's a lot of different books. It depends on what people are, are focusing on. I mean, if we're talking about beginning books, you know, for multifamily, you know, I, I still like, uh, you know, Dave Lindahl's book, you know, Multifamily Millions. Matt Faircloth has that book on raising money. Joe Farrellis's book on syndication. You know, those are good. There's other books you know, out there as far as for, for motivation and stuff. I like Tony Robbins and his stuff. And there's so many of these other self-improvement guys that I really like. And I, and I think that's underrated a lot, a lot of times that people don't realize how much of it is, is in your head. And uh, a lot of it's motivation and drive. I had a guy call me up one time. I was having a meeting and he calls me up and, and, he, and he's 20 minutes away from where my meeting was. And he said, oh, don't you have anything closer? And I said, wait a minute, the meeting's 20 minutes. If you can't, if you can't make it to the meeting because you don't want to drive 20 minutes, then don't do real estate. Don't do real estate. Forget it. Walk away. Yeah. Walk away. Don't bother. I mean, I, there's times I drive, you know, two hours to go to a meeting that I'm just going there to network. So, you know, and I travel all over. I'm, I was, you know, in Tampa, I was in Colorado, I'm going to Florida. If, if you're not going to dedicate a lot of time to this, if you're not going to put the time in, then, then don't bother because that's what it takes. So it's a mental thing, not just, sure, you want to gain knowledge, but the networking is important and pushing yourself when you'd really rather be doing something else. Maybe I'd rather be sitting or watching a TV program or doing whatever. And so it's, it's mental stamina as well. Yeah. All right. So on that first deal, you said you guys had investors. Did you, um, how did you go about finding that, that in those investors? Okay. Um, I was with uh, a partner. She's, uh, she lives up in Alaska and most of her, we rose, we raised about half, I mean, this was, this was a big raise, you know, $350,000. We had never raised a penny before. So that was, that was a big deal for us. And about half of it she raised. And most of the people that she brought in were, were uh, ex-employers or uh, coworkers or friends. And uh, when I look at what, where I brought it in from, it was all from networking. It was people I had met at real estate events, people that essentially that I'd met on, on different real estate events, but really none of my friends or family. So it was just networking, 
that that got it. It was, I guess, it was also. Um, let's see, I wasn't, I, I didn't get on the first podcast until after we bought it. So a lot of it was going on bigger pockets and responding to uh, people's questions. And I was on there a lot, just answering people's questions. And people would contact me and say, "Hey, I like what you said on that on that uh, forum." And you know, how can I get involved with you? And so those are those are the most people. A lot of my investors I've never met. I've never met in person. Uh, a lot of them I've met through phone calls. And since then, a lot of them have been, you know, from other podcasts where they've heard me on other podcasts, as well as all the different networking events I go to. Gotcha. That's cool. Did you use any of your own money on that first deal? The only money that we used was to get us into it. Mm-hmm. And then we got our money out at the close. Uh, most of our money has been spent uh, you know, for our education, you know, and travel for that kind of stuff. But as far as on the deal, we pulled our money back out at the end. You know, we didn't have very much money. So we needed to have that available for the next deal or for the next time, the next seminar we were going to. So, yeah, we didn't have enough to, to put into those deals. So I want to talk a little bit more about some of the other asset classes that you're involved in. You're into student housing and you're also into some assisted living facilities. Can you walk us through some of some of those deals and how you got involved in that? Okay, uh, the assisted living we haven't done yet, but I do like that class. It just so happens that my daughter-in-law used to run an assisted living facility. She used to run two homes. So she's a great resource for me on that. But we haven't purchased one yet. But I think it's a great I think it's a great asset class. My generation are getting older and there's certainly going to be a need for it. And I think about, you know, hey, if if I needed that assistance, you know, I would rather be in a small family home. You know, if I couldn't live at home, I'd rather be in a small family home than an institution you know, with, with 50 people or something, I'd rather be in a house with six people. So I think it's a great asset class. You don't see as much in the way of value add on that one, unless you, if you find a house and convert it, then obviously you've got a value add there. The student housing, I like a lot because it's easy for people to mess up. And because of that, we're finding some value adds that we can resolve. We bought a property in Georgia. It was 48% occupied, but it was only 30% economic occupancy. Okay, so all those, the rest of those weren't paying. And right now we're selling that property. It's at 95% occupancy. Wow. Um, so we bought it for a million one, and right now we're selling it for, well, I just got an offer about three nine on it. So, and that's in two years. So we added the value by fixing it up, getting the occupancy up, changing the reputation of it, had a horrible reputation. One of the things we did was go to the athletic department and talk to the coaches and said, hey, we want you to send your athletes over to us because we were a block away. He said, here, you know, they're a block away. They can walk to school. And they looked at us and said, why would we want to send our, our students over there? You know, it was just kind of, we said, whoa. So it had it had a horrible reputation, and we so we told them, "Hey, you know, we put five hundred grand into that thing, and we said, come over and take a look at it now." And they came over and looked at it, and now we've got got all kinds of athletes over there. We've made a couple changes that they wanted, like a uh, 
card access doors, you know, card reader doors, for because that's what their security asks us to do. So we did do that. Uh, other than that, we put Wi-Fi throughout. Uh, we updated the old analog cameras to all digital. We still really need to add a few more. We put furniture in um, in all of the units. None of them were furnished. We also basically redid the entire units. I mean, the floors, uh, we redid all the floors, paint, um, all the fixtures were replaced, resurfaced the countertops, resurfaced the tubs and showers, and uh, redid all that. Put quite a bit of money into it, but uh, that's, that's all coming back because it's you know a super nice facility right now. And right now we are in the middle of redoing the uh, leasing office and the laundry room. That's awesome. How big is that unit? How many? Um, that's it's not that big, but it's thirty six units. It's thirty six four bedroom two bath units, and oh, the other thing that we did, we got we um, we donated to the athletic department. So for three thousand dollars, we get two sixty second spots on their jumbotron at every home basketball and home football game that we get our commercial and I went down there and I interviewed the students and my team actually did the, the film editing. I uh, happen to have someone on my team that has a background in film editing. They edited it, put some music on it. And now we've got this real catchy clip that gets played at every basketball and football game. And so we essentially filled up, we had a waiting list for a while at a hundred percent. That's great. That's awesome. So it's, so, it's, creative and that's i think that can be really helpful when you're doing some of these different properties where you have to have that value add and you have to sort of change the reputation you had to get creative and really and still network with the neighborhood and the the coaches and stuff so you're kind of reusing all those skills that you use just to get the properties and the investors and things in the first place yeah we we actually interviewed with the we went and saw the mayor. That's what it was. A, it's a small town, so it's easy to get to see a lot of the, the important people. But we, the mayor, actually came to our open house wearing one of our T-shirts. So she came. She came with our T-shirt. We had a DJ that was uh, broadcasting live, uh, and she came to it. We've had the coaches come by. We've had the security uh, from the school come by to look at the, the property, see what they thought about it. And it's become a real community thing. And I'll, I'll tell you something that hasn't really been announced uh, as of this time, but the school is considering buying the property since it's on that. We told them we're, we're selling it. So the school alumni, they don't have sufficient uh, rooms. And so we're telling them if they're interested, they better hurry up because otherwise we'll sell it to somebody else. So they may be, buy the property and, that, that will be good. Use it for dorms. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about the differences between a multifamily in Harlingen, Texas, that's about 40, you know, what, 20 units and student housing in a small town in Georgia of 36 units. So what's the, you know, uh, explain what some of the differences are between standard multifamily and student housing multifamily. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, there's some real important things. The most important thing is your property management. The property management is key. You need, because you advertise differently, you market it differently with the, the student housing. You can't just go and throw it on Craigslist and apartments.com. And I mean, that's what we did with the Harlingen property. We, we never paid for advertisement. We put it on uh, Craigslist. That's all we did. And we filled it up. But on other 
you have to, you have to do social media. You have to get out there. You have to get where the young people are going to be looking. And you know, Facebook and Twitter and whatever all these other <laughs> different social media outlets are. But the, you do that. Also, um, you go to on-campus events. We purchased a, you know a table cover and a canopy. And anytime there's an open house or a back-to-school night or a parents' night or whatever it is, we have a table. Our manager is out there with a, with a table and giving out trinkets, uh, you know, about you know, for the property with the property name on it. That's that's critical in the student housing because the the students, you know, they they need to see you. They need to see who's who's the management company because they want to relate to you, the the managers. And if you have a management company that isn't equipped to do that or isn't prepared to do that, you know, they're not. It's not going to work for the student housing. The, the other thing is, is timing. The, every school seems to have a different lease-up window. You miss that window and, and you're toast. You're, you, could be, you could be vacant for the rest of the year, you know, until the next semester. And that's critical. And, and the different schools and sometimes even different properties have a different window. Uh, an example is my property in Ohio I've got one building that's 12 studios, okay? So it's just a studio apartments, mm -hmm. and the other ones are all mostly four-bedroom, two-bath units. Well, I actually have some four-bedroom, four-bath units as well. But the, the window for the other units, the four-bedroom units, you know, if we're not all leased up by, by the end of March, maybe April, we're probably – going to have a real difficult time because groups that want to come in with four people and rent all together, those, they're going to do that early. Now my studios, we probably could rent all the way through to August because those are, sometimes you get the young professors, uh, sometimes you'll get grad students, you get sometimes the people that just want to be by themselves and don't want to be in with a bunch of other people. So and that just depends. Now, my Georgia property, we were renting all the way up through August. It's a different demographic. The, the Georgia property is a lower, lower uh, economic uh, group of uh, students, where my Ohio property is, you know, upper middle class. And it seems the upper middle class plan a little bit better, you know, or at least the parents do, that they're going to be looking for a place to stay a lot sooner. The others, um, the, the lower class students, maybe just don't plan as well. And, and they may not have the help of their parents either. You know, the parents don't know. The parents may have never gone to college. You know, a lot of these kids are maybe the first, the first generation that gets to go to college. And so they don't really know that they need to plan ahead. So, okay. th so different properties are, are different. And those two are totally, totally extreme of each other uh, as far as the, the timing on it. So the thing is, is the lease up window the, the marketing aspects of the property management. Also at some of our properties, we do roommate matching where we try to bring in people that are hopefully compatible with each other. Our current generation doesn't like to share. <laughs> and, and sometimes uh, we find that uh, being social together and living together with some strangers is difficult. The other thing that you find in student housing is they like the one-to-one -one on uh, bed and bath parity. They don't like to share bathrooms either. Mm. So you see a lot of that with the young generation. So 
<laughs> Back <laughs> in my day. No, I'm right. <laughs> Back yeah, in my just, day, I lived in a dorm and shared a bathroom with 20 people. I know. Exactly, yeah. But that's... I had to walk down the hall and shower in a stall. <laughs> exactly. Hey, well, actually, when I was over in Germany, I remember some of the places we stayed. Yeah, you know, it was very communal. And, yeah. and, the, and the bathroom wasn't in your room. You had to go down the hall to go get it. So, yes. Yeah. But nowadays, they want, even if it's a very tiny bathroom, they want their own bathroom. They want the privacy. They want to be able, nobody messing with their stuff. Um, is, is that a value add that you can make with some of the properties to do that kind of like renovation to add a bathroom? No, I know people that have done that. I know people that have done that where they've cut it back where they can add a tiny bathroom or a unit that might be a four, two, they might split into a two, one into two ones because at least that way they're only sharing with one other person instead of sharing a, a unit with, you know, three other people. Um, the two ones seem to be more popular than a four, a four, two. Yeah. But if you can add a little postage stamp uh, bathroom, that certainly is going to be more desirable. Yeah. yeah. Now you said sometimes you, you know, there's some challenges with timing and, and leasing up. Do you ever put some of these units on to short-term rental to, to sort of fill in on some of those times? Yes. Yes. In fact, my Arizona property, we had that issue where we came in in December on that property and the selling property manager uh, didn't do any lease up. And so we were late to the game. And so we, we do have vacancies on that property. So yes, we do have some market rate rentals in there that uh, will be out, you know, next or this coming July, the end of July. And so we can get students back in there because we can't, we're not getting, the rates that we could get for students. But yeah, we're doing that just to fill the units and get some money coming in. So yeah, that, that can be a problem, but that's a solution. The other thing is, is corporate rentals, doing it as a corporate rental or short-term rentals just to get bodies in there and uh, get some yeah. funds coming in. I wonder yeah. if you could get like uh, visiting parents and students for like a short-term, you yeah, know, kind of like. Yeah, they probably wouldn't pay the, they're not going to, well, it'd be kind of like Airbnb, but yeah. it's more specific. Like you get to stay in student housing with your kid. I don't know. I don't know if the kid would like that. <laughs> well, I, yeah, probably not. But. But, but the Airbnb, yes. And the other thing is, is traveling nurses, you know, those mm -hmm. kind of things where they may be there for six months, yeah. you know, something, something like that. So yeah, the, the thing is, is you're going to try to get them in. But the thing is, is the one thing that I do like about student housing, as I said before, is somebody else's mistake could be my, my gold mine. And I mean, the, the Georgia property we got, that was in foreclosure. That was in foreclosure. We bought it from the note holder and the, the asset manager actually wanted to turn it around when they took it over. But the, he had a, it was a fund and they said, now the investors in the fund wanted the money out. They wanted to get out of it. So we got to turn it around instead of him doing it. So that, that worked out very well. Awesome. Great. Well, so how much time do you spend on real estate? This I've gotten that this is probably your primary job that you do. Well, it's my only job now. <laughs> uh, I've retired uh, from my, my W-2 job a few years back. And I've, I haven't really documented how long. I know I'll get up at 6.30 in the morning and then I'll check my email and I'll start doing some stuff and 
then I'll take the dog out to the walk and come back and work some more and, you know, go see the kids or something. And, you know, so it's kind of scattered throughout, but from 6.30 in the morning till 10.30 at night, uh, I may be working with stretches in between. I, you know, here we are on a Sunday and, and I'm working, but, you know, I've already taken the dog for the walk and I'll go do something, you know, a little bit later. So it's, the nice part about it is my commute is 25 feet. Um, you know, and the only traffic I hit is when the dog gets in the way. So, the, you know, I love that part of it. I used to do a 40-mile commute one way. And um, so I'm able to, you know, do it on my time and when, when I want to. So that's always a good thing. That's awesome. Well, and you get to hang out with us on a nice <laughs> Sunday, <know>. you know. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Yeah. So are there any systems or anything that you've developed to help you sort of automate your business at all? Uh, yeah. Well, the thing is, see, I have a, a team that there was a group that at one time kind of cornered me and said, hey, you're going to mentor us. So we're not going to let you out of here. Um, <laughs> and so I said, okay, look, I said, I didn't want to organize anything. I said, look, let's show up every other week and I'll just start teaching and because you're not paying me, I don't have to be organized. I can just start talking about whatever. And so, so I started working with them. Anyway, long story short, we ended up getting two properties because of them that they went out and found the two properties. Um, our Georgia property and our Arizona property were because they found it. So we became, we said, okay, let's become a company. Um, because about three or four years ago, I broke up, uh, we broke up with my, my business partner, the lady from Alaska. So they've become my company. So the communication that we really use, that we love a lot, is Slack. Now, most of my people are in California, but I do have uh, team members in uh, Connecticut, Philadelphia, Oklahoma, anywhere else. Well, I think that's where the rest of them are. And, oh, Virginia. So we communicate all the time on Slack, which is fantastic. I don't know if you're familiar with Slack. Yeah. but. It's, you know, instant messenger, but the nice thing is, is you can break it into channels where typically with your instant messaging or typical forums, somebody could ask something and then, then 20 things later, somebody's answering and you never know what the answer was to what the question was because there's so much other stuff in between. Well, the nice part about Slack is we can separate it out by properties or by states or by cities or by topics. And so there's much less clutter in between somebody asking a question and somebody answering. And also you can, you can tag somebody, you can tag somebody so they know that there is a question for them and it will show up on their screen with a number next to it. And you know, okay, there's something out there. Somebody's tagged me and you'll go look for the tag. So Slack is fabulous. I don't know that we can do our business without something like the other thing that we do is we use Podio. Podio is a database. And basically, every property that we underwrite, every property that we look at, we put in Podio. So when we're working on a property and, and somebody has a bunch of information, either about the market or about the particular property, we can go back into Podio and look for it rather than going into Slack and then scrolling up trying to find the information. You go into Podio and Podio will have all the information that we have on a specific property. And then we also have in Podio, we, 
we have sections for property managers. We have sections for brokers. So if we need to know what pro brokers we're working with in a certain market or what property managers we're working with on a, on a certain market, that's, that's all in the database. My team will, will assign themselves different positions on each deal. So I might, one of my people will go and grab a team lead. They'll become the, excuse me, they'll become a deal lead and they'll be the one that's in charge of talking to the broker and they'll be the one that's in charge of working with one of our underwriters. And they'll say, hey, I need an underwriter. So one of my underwriters will sign up for that property and, and help to underwrite the property. And, and if the underwriter says, hey, I need more information, the, the deal lead will go back and uh, back to the broker and say, hey, I need some more information. And then when they decide that, hey, this is a deal we, we're interested in, uh, they'll take it to my team lead and he'll look it over if he likes it. Then what we'll do is they'll prepare a presentation for me, which will be all the bullet points of why we want to be in this market, why we like this property, what's going on in this market or what the plan is, the value adds in this. And so when I look at it, I get, I get the cliff notes. I get the cliff notes. I'll go and I'll look at it. And if it looks interesting to me, then I can go, I can always go back and dig into the details that they've used because that's all in our filing system. I can go look at it and say, okay, yeah, I agree with you. 90 and 99% of the time I agree with them and I'll say, okay, yeah, this is a good idea. Let's put an offer in. Some of the time I'll say, Hey, you know, I don't, I want to get more information about this market or, you know, I don't like this market or whatever, you know, and I'll send it back or whatever. And we'll do that. But most of the time they know what they're doing and uh, that they know what I'm looking for. Yeah. And then we go from there. But the, the Podio and Slack are probably our, our two biggest. Uh, and we also use, of course, Google Drive. That's where all the files are kept for each property. We have a file on each property, any information in there. Uh, I guess those are probably the three that, that we use the most. That's great. That's, that's a really cool system to yeah. really make it so that you're not having to... <laughs> You're not doing the finding anymore, really, which is where a lot of the time the time comes from when when you're in this business. Well, and multifamily, real estate in general is a team sport. Um, there are there are people out there who do it all by themselves, but they're usually going to be a smaller uh, smaller operator, single family homes, somebody who's doing multifamily and syndications and things like that. I just don't I don't know anybody who does it all by themselves and does it all. It's um, tough. How big is your team? I believe, what do we go, nine? I think we got nine of us. Nine of us. And, and most of them are, like I said, I think we've got three, four, four that aren't in California. Uh, the, rest, the rest are all out here. Actually, local local to me. Yeah, and, and the thing is, is my the Ohio property that I bought, that was just after my breakup with my business partner. And that one I did basically all by myself. I did have a 19-year-old intern that did some stuff for me, but for the most part, I did it all myself, and that was that was pretty stressful. That was pretty stressful. Nowadays, my team does most of the work. I still do the fundraising. I still do the equity raise for the most part. Uh, I'd love to uh, get that, you know, pan that uh, piece off as well, and uh, you know, I can kind of just move on to you know other things. But no, I mean it's. It's great. I work with the team as the as the lead of the whole group. Plus, I spend a lot of time networking. 
to raise the equity. Do you think get you know trying to find an opportunity to be on a team like this is a good place to start for someone who hasn't been in the business for very long or is looking to start out? Oh, absolutely. I I think that people should look at the different pieces that are needed and decide how they can benefit a syndicator or somebody that is doing it. So maybe somebody is a great network and they know a lot of high net worth people uh, and they can raise money for a syndicator. Or maybe they really are good at finding deals and off-market deals and maybe they can bring the deals in. Maybe they're great with Excel and they, they love underwriting, they love numbers so they can help out with that. You know, whatever piece that they can bring to a syndicator uh, is what they should do and then learn. And like with, with a couple of my team members, I have a couple ladies that they were working with me on a property. I have one lady in particular, she was working on our Arizona property and we're, you know, she was on all the calls with the property manager and we're talking to them or whatever. And her questions were, were better than mine. And I said, wait a minute, why am I doing this? You go and I want you to be my asset manager. And so I brought her into an asset management position because she had, she knew what she was talking about. She had the great question. She had the probing, you know, questions. And I did that with another one on my Georgia property. She was basically doing the same thing that, that she had these great questions. She just had just remodeled her house. And so she had just got through dealing with contractors. And so now we're doing all this remodel stuff on the Georgia property. And she's asking all these questions. And I said, you don't need me. And so I've put both of those ladies in asset management positions where I'm not needed in that. And I love it because I will, I will jump on the meetings with them and I kind of sit in the background and pop in when, when I have a question. But for the most part, they're setting up the meetings. They're having the conversations. They're asking why isn't this done or when is this going to be done? Or they've been going out to the properties to check some of the work that's been being done. So these are two ladies that came in with me that the one lady was afraid to get on the phone call with a broker and now she's training my other team members and same with the other lady she she had, she was a fix and flipper on her own and had done that but really hadn't dealt with brokers and really hadn't dealt with property managers and now i've they're basically training anybody new that we bring in so yeah i mean i i love it it's it's phenomenal you get you get good people that that get along with each other that you know, as they say, you know, you got two arms, you know, one to, one to pull yourself up and one to pull somebody else up with you. And you have that attitude and you can have great team members, you know, just bringing people along with you and learning with you. Yeah. Awesome. Very rewarding when you're yeah. doing. So obviously you do invest long distance. You've got properties in Ohio, Georgia, Arizona, and Texas, or maybe you don't have the Texas property anymore. Well, obviously, we're buying. We're buying one in Texas right now. Okay, um, closing next week. Yep. So, <laughs> how do you? Because you're obviously in Southern California, and you don't invest in Southern California, do you? No, haven't found anything that works. Yeah, yeah. The, the numbers just don't work. So, how do you go about? Let's say, let's start with qualifying the market and saying, all right, this is a market we want to be in, and then two, perhaps building a team on the ground to help you execute on buying properties there? Well, first of all, on the market, there are, there are several markets that we are looking at that are good markets. And I've, 
and this is a shift that we're taking because we've been chasing a lot of rabbits and it's, it's, it's too difficult when you look at everything that comes in from a broker and, and evaluate it. And typically there's a 50 other people that are also going to be offering on it. It's been too difficult. So I've instructed my team to pick out a couple markets and they're going to become experts on those markets so we can focus in. Now, the other side of it is if somebody brings me a deal from a market that maybe I'm not familiar with and they bring this deal to me all wrapped up in a ribbon with, with all the information about that property and about that market and convince me that this is something that I, that I want to do, that they've done all the work and all the research for me, we'll look at other markets. So we're open to that. But what I'm not open to is someone goes and throws a property to me and says, here is the property I found, you know, and then we've got to put all the time and effort into research. That's, that's wasting my time. Yeah. And, and I actually brought one, the, uh, the people that are, are up in uh, Virginia, that they brought me a property that they did such a fabulous job of packaging it and evaluating it and telling me what the plan was and how much you could raise the rents and, and why they liked that market. And, and they did such a super job of packaging the deal and telling me all this information. That I go and I said, wait a minute, do you want to join our team? <laughs> I, want, I want you working with us because that's exactly what I want is someone that can do that. And so now they're working with us and, and uh, working on finding properties. And I can't remember what the question was. <laughs> Where uh, I was going, I got So eva evaluating the market and, oh, then, okay. build, and then building, building the teams on the ground. Okay. Yeah. So once we, once we decide on a market – Okay, obviously we don't rely too heavily on brokers, brokers' uh, opinion, but we, we do, we'll go and talk to several different brokers and find out what areas they would rate as A, B, C, D, you know, what areas are the path of progress, what areas to stay away from. If you go and ask three different brokers that question or those questions, you can get a decent idea of what areas you want to stay away from. The other thing is, is, we, we talk to property managers. Uh, if we can get a property manager to go out and look at a property, we will do that. If there's a property that we're interested in, we'll, we'll go in, we'll go into the city, and we'll talk to the city. We'll talk to the police department, the fire department, zoning, building safety, uh, all these different government departments to get a good idea about where the path of progress is. We also go to economic development. We'll sit with them and, and talk to them to find out where the city's going, if the city's growing, what they're bringing into the city, what the city has to offer. And of course, we look at, you know, we look at a lot of stats. You know, you go to city-data and you can see a lot of the, the demographics. You know, you can see crime, you can see medium home prices, you can see the change in home prices, you can see incomes, the change in incomes. There's so much data nowadays that you can get online for the different markets and crime rates and all that stuff. And so we do a lot of research on that when we decide that we're going to go into a market. And as I said, we're trying to narrow down the market so we can narrow down some of that time that has to be spent on that research. Or if somebody brings us a property where they've done all that, where they've done all that and they say, okay, here's all this information. This is, you know, the population growth, unemployment, 
employment and diversification, all those typical stats. Now, though a lot of that stuff is different when you're talking about student housing. So this totally different criteria that we're looking at in student housing. Student housing, the big thing is the university, how, how large the university is, how much housing they have on campus compared to the percentage, uh, to the number of students. We want to have you know, under 30% dorms available for their population. You want, because we do off-campus housing, we want them to have an off-campus housing need. So we want to do that. How far is it from the campus? How, how healthy is the campus? Are they, they the university? Are they growing? How much money they're putting into improvements into the community? Those kind of things. We want to know what's, what's going on in the university more so than the city. I mean, my, the property that we have in Ohio is in Oxford, Ohio, which is like 20,000 population with 18,000 students. So most of the population is student. The only employer, the main employer, is the university. Well, typically, you're not going to want to go into a market with multifamily with one, one employer. I don't like going into military towns where military is the only employer. Student housing is a little different. If you've got a nice, healthy school, they're not going to be deploying the kids overseas. So, you know, if you've got a healthy uh, school, that's the main thing is you want to know what's going on with that school. And, you know, the, the Miami University, Miami of Ohio, I think is 100, 180 years old or something like that. So it's, it's a healthy school and that's what you're looking for. Gotcha. Awesome. All right. So um, we've probably touched on this a little bit here and there, but what do you believe is the most critical skill that a new investor looking to thrive in either the multifamily or the student housing niche would need to master? Their why? <laughs> I think, I think mental, the mental game is more important than anything else. Uh, it's too easy to give up. A reason why they want to do this, because sometimes it's fun, sometimes it's not. And why they want to sit up late at night you know, or getting up early in the morning, what's motivating them? I really feel that mentally you have to have a reason to want to do this, either your kids or your retirement or whatever it is, because there's going to be a lot of aspects that you don't like doing. There's plenty of things I don't like doing in this business, and I do it, and it's, it's painful to do it. So I've got to do something to motivate myself to do those things because I know that in the end, it's, it's going to be worth it all because I'm going to get to my goals and I'm going to get what I need. And so that's the big skill. The other thing is, depends on what role you're paying. I always, liking people is always, always a good thing in enjoying networking. And I've, and I've had people communicate with me. I remember on Bigger Pockets, there was uh, one guy was mentioning, says, you know, I'm really an introvert and I, and I, and I have trouble talking to people. And I told him, I said, first of all, get over it. You know, I've been an introvert. I am an introvert. I was an introvert. Get over it. I said, go to, go to Toastmasters. Push yourself. Push your limits. Push yourself out of your comfort zone. People look at me and say, you're not an introvert. <laughs> well, I've always been an introvert all my life. 
but I've had to push myself. Now I've gone up and I've been on, on the stage in front of a thousand people and I've been up there talking. Okay. Because that's what I had to do to yeah. do this business. And you have to push yourself out of your comfort zone. And the only way you grow is when you push yourself from your, your comfort zone. Anybody that's ever worked out, you know that you get to a level of pain and you get stronger when you've pushed past that pain, right? Yeah. Anybody that's done any kind of athletics or workouts or whatever, you know, if you stop when you get to that pain, you're never going you're, you're to grow. So you get past being uncomfortable. And next time, you're going to be uncomfortable at a different level. And you keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. I was a swimmer when I was young, and it was always at a certain point you hit a wall. And then if you pushed yourself past that wall, next time the wall was farther out. You know, next yeah. time the wall was farther away. And you kept doing that and doing that. And, and people that haven't done athletics maybe don't know that. And, and in business or in life, it's more of a mental wall than, than what it is in athletes. or athletics where you're, it's more physical that you feel it. But you push yourself and all of a sudden next time it's, wow, that was easy. You know, like the, per, the person that buys their first property. Once you get past that hurdle of buying the first property, then the next one's easy because now you understand it a little more. So I think those are very important things is, is realizing that you can you push yourself out of your comfort zone, being willing to get into your comfort zone, be uncomfortable. Yeah. I've been uncomfortable many times. <laughs> but uh, every time I've pushed myself beyond, you learn and you grow. Great points. If you had to start your real estate investing career all over today, knowing what you know now, what would you do? Oh, network, meet a lot of great people. Yeah, the network is, is, is important. Uh, I'm, in a, I'm in a great mastermind right now where there's um, massive owners that some of them are you know, owning billion or control, control over a billion dollars worth of property. And just being next to them and talking to them and, and, and having them give you ideas is, is just awesome. So I would say, you know, the network, um, meeting people that are where you want to be, where you want to get to. And, and I would do that sooner. I would have, I mean, I did a lot of that with a lot of the seminars I went to, but I didn't realize how important it was to even push farther and be with people that are way ahead of me. There's always going to be people behind you and there's going to be people ahead of you. So associating with the people that are going to be supportive and ahead of you is, um, is, is extremely important. Yeah. If I was going to, I mean, I could lose everything right now and, and I really wouldn't, you know, the, my network, my people that I can call up and talk to is, is more important than anything else. Just resources of people. Your network is your net worth. Exactly. It is. It's extremely important. And in this business, it is so important. So important in this business, your resources. The nice thing uh, that I, that I really like uh, about real estate that, you know, like you can't do in the stock market, you know, insider trading is legal. So, you know, (laughs) knowing people and finding people. I mean, there's been times that I've heard, you know, people talk and say, Oh yeah, I've got this deal, you know, 
I mean, just networking, you know, one person might sell a deal to another deal or, or another person, or I went to a mastermind and, and two people met there that they found out that one had just sold their property to another guy that was in the same meeting. They hadn't met. They hadn't met before until they came to this meeting. And all of a sudden they, they met. It's essentially a small industry. Yeah. It's a small industry and networking and reputation is extremely important. Yeah. So for someone who is is looking to get into this and has a full-time job and a family, besides networking, is there any other advice that you feel like you would want to give that person? Well, I would start out with the education. Okay, education. I mentioned some books uh, that can get you the basics. And there is a ton of podcasts out there. There's a ton of podcasts. I would throw away your music library and just listen to podcasts as often as you can. When you drive, when you walk, whenever. Uh, there's so much education out there. There's so much value out there. There's so many books out there as well. Uh, and and 99% of the stuff is free. You know, there's, there's so much value out there. Get yourself educated. Figure a way to be of value to somebody that is doing it and help them out. That's, that's what I would say is either, either find money, find out how to do it properly, how to raise money. But if you happen to know high net worth people, you know, syndicators are always looking for money. They always need the equity. They always look for deals. So the two things, find out how to legally bring in investors. And then the other thing is, is find out how to properly underwrite properties and how to value the properties and then bring them to investors. You don't have to start small. You can start big, but you need to know how to value a property and bring that to a syndicator. You bring, you find out what they want, what they're looking for, and now you've added value to them. You've saved them time. And as you mentioned before, uh, you know, time is a great value. There's, there's nothing more valuable to any of us in this business than time. Absolutely. You can't get any more of that. Nope. Well, listen, Jeff, we have really enjoyed this conversation and we could, we could talk probably for another hour, uh, <laughs> but we won't subject you that, to that. But we wanted to thank you so much for sharing today. If any of our guests want to reach out to you, what's the best way they can find you? Well, they can find me at my website at uh, synergeticig.com. That's S-Y-N-E-R-G-E-T-I-C-I-G.com. Or they can email me at that same, at, at jeff at synergeticig.com. Those are the best ways. I do get on the bigger pockets, uh, not quite as often as I should, but my email is probably the best way to get a hold of me. Okay, and all that will be in the show notes. So. All right, thank you. Awesome. Well, listen, we hope you have a great day. It was uh, great having you. Well, thank you very much. It was, uh, it was fun, and uh, thank you very much. Well, that was a great interview with Mr. Jeff Greenberg. Yes, I really enjoyed talking to him. It was yeah. really awesome. We actually had a, also a very nice chat after we stopped yes. recording. So. Yeah, which we, all, we, always, we always do, and they're yeah. always great, but uh, this one was especially good. So. Yeah. yeah, it was really... Um, I feel lucky that we actually, we got to meet him at the best ever yes. conference. It was yeah. a happy accident. So was there a key lesson that you learned from this interview? Yes. I would say one of the main ones was leverage the market experts in whatever market you're going into. The brokers, property managers, the people in city government, like police and fire and 
zoning people, mm -hmm. um, leverage those experts. Don't, you know, you, you don't have to become an expert in, in the market. Leverage those experts uh, was one, was a big one. Yeah. I think for me, a lot of it was surrounding that networking and education. And he sort of melded that together that, you know, you want to network and then use that network to help educate yourself or, you know, kind of bring everybody up and, and utilize what skills you have and what skills they have um, so that you get kind of an everybody wins situation mm -hmm. that he really has done well with because he, he, we talked about this after the interview when we stopped recording that really the reason he has this amazing team that he works with is because he decided to give to them. You know, he, he worked with them for free to teach them what he knew. And then in turn that brought him this, you know, amazing team that is uh, benefiting him as well. So just relationships and educating yourself can take you a long way and can be free. And um, it's just really your time that you have to pay for. Yes. Uh, and that was the other key lesson was that build a team that where everyone has a job. Real estate is a team sport. Uh, and so many of us are out there trying to do it all ourselves, trying to find deals, trying to underwrite deals, trying to find the money for deals, trying to talk to owners and brokers and property managers, things like that. It's a team sport. So build a team, give every person in that team a job and find a flow that works for you where a deal enters your team's sphere and then work through that deal, hopefully push it through and put an offer on and close it next to your business plan. So yeah. yeah, awesome. So while we're on the subject of knowledge, how, how did Jeff, really acquire his knowledge? Where did that come from? I would say a couple of different ways. It was not just one way. He won, uh, he did, he did hire, he did pay for mentorship, mm -hmm. um, gurus, you know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, he also talked about, I'm not sure if he, there were podcasts at the time. He said there weren't any podcasts at the time. He talked mostly, it sounded like he did a lot of his educating through conferences, meetups, you know, that mm. networking piece that's really served him very well, obviously. Um, now he's, you know, gone to like, you can do this through podcasts, go on bigger pockets. And he did say he went on bigger pockets a lot and probably learned there and then also showed his expertise and that again, brought him some people. But the, the initial knowledge really came from paying for mentorship and going to real estate events, which is really easy to do now because there are a lot of them. There's a lot of meetups. There's usually plenty of people in your town that are probably willing to share their knowledge with you, let alone, um, you know, these conferences around the, the country. Gotcha. So how much money did it take for him to get started? He had to raise about $350,000. And I think that was split between him and the partner that he had at the time. I think so. Yeah. I believe so he had to do some uh, capital raising. It sounded like he really didn't put a ton. He didn't give us a number. No. Um, so maybe whatever he put down. Yeah. Um, it sounded like most of what he said, they didn't have a lot of money starting out, but most of the money that they had went towards executing on the deal, on the closing the deal, which is mm -hmm. traveling out to see the property inspections and, and uh, legal fees and things like that. Mm -hmm. In my experience, that typically can run about $15,000. Okay. All right. So that's just my guess. 
All right. So how much time does Jeff spend on real estate endeavors? Uh, it was not, we didn't nail him down on that. He said, he sounded like he didn't have to work on it a huge amount. It was sort of like whenever, uh, you know, he, he woke up at 6.30 and, and did some work and then walked the dog and did some work and then hung out with his grandkids and... Some more work, yeah. And, yeah. and maybe and maybe sort of wrap things up later in the evening. Yeah. Um, but I would guess that he's probably working the amount of a foolish time job. It's just in a very split up way. Yes. And probably some of that he maybe doesn't even have to do because he has that team in place. And, you know, some of that is more on the probably thought leadership platform or the interview platform, you know, things like podcasts yeah. and things like that. So he definitely spends his time on it though, which is, yeah. but I don't, I, before we go on to our next evaluation, I'm just curious, like, do we feel like this is a something, you know, he works on this for 40 to 60 hours a week, maybe, but I think we should mention that the way, you know, cause that number sounds like, well, if I have a full-time job, how am I supposed to do that? You know, Neil and Brittany, you're on here trying to show me that I can do this as a working, you know, parent, and that, and that doesn't sound like something you could do unless you want to kill yourself. So I think it's good to mention and kind of refer back to the episode that if you want to do this, get in as a team member and spend your time doing a part of what he's doing or, or, you know, the piece that you're good at and spend whatever extra time that you can on that. So it may be that you only have 10 extra hours a week, but you spend those 10 extra hours looking for a deal and you're really good at that. Or you spend those 10 extra hours underwriting a deal that a friend brought you, whatever that is, you can do that before you get to the point where you can quit a job and do this full time. I'm getting kind of teary eyed. <laughs> I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> I'm learning. I'm learning. <laughs> Hang on, I'm the clump. <clears throat> so, just for our audience, like six months ago, I'd probably been like, "Uh huh, sure, yep, whatever." So, um, so could could he do this strategy from anywhere in the world? I think so. I mean, we we didn't really. Obviously, we talked about that he has properties in other places, and we didn't really get into like the international travel question. But we've we've talked to people who do similar things to him, and I think it really comes down to um, having that team on the ground that can really evaluate a property for you in person if that's what you need, and then being able to travel occasionally to whatever place you're going to. And and that's this is definitely a strategy that you can do that once you're up and running. Yes. All right. Well, that was the evaluation of Jeff Greenberg. And And if you like this podcast, we would really appreciate it if you take just a few minutes and leave a review for us on iTunes. It's really simple to do. Just go to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash review for links and instructions. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels.